Hear the word of the Lord from John 1, 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Rob Spikestra. I am the pastor of discipleship here. And the reason you're seeing me here again this week is because Pastor Justin, our lead pastor, he is saving us quite a bit of money in terms of the new building. And part of that is being just a general contractor. But also, he has gone back to his previous occupation of a builder these last two weeks. In the building itself, uh, the uh, the offices and one classroom are all ready to be are ready to be kind of built up and so uh, he uh, uh, he and a few others have put together you know studs and and um, drywall and they taped it and they mud it and like I know what I'm talking about that's what he did okay so I can't do that but I can preach and so he did that last week he did that this week and that's all been completed and so you will see him uh, this coming. Uh, this coming Sunday, uh, preaching up here. Uh, One other thing I just wanted to point out, uh, uh, Kevin had identified the Advanced Capital Campaign pledge cards. Uh, As you uh, know, our members have pledged over a three-year period towards the new building that we'll be entering into, Lord willing, in the middle of August. Uh, over $600,000 over a three-year period, and that's all of our members, Uh, but if you are not a member and you'd like to join them in that, then here's the card that we're referring to. It gives you you an opportunity to tell us how how frequent your money is going to come in, uh, whether that be weekly, monthly, bi-monthly, or whatever, and uh, how that might come in. 
And uh, we, want, we need that information only because our finance uh, team wants to be able to budget well, and so that's why we're asking that. So if you, if you want to join us, please, uh, our members, fill this out, put it in the, in the offering box down here, or give it to me, and uh, we'll make sure that we have that down as well. Really appreciate that uh, very much. Well, um, I'm going to uh, lead us in a word of prayer over God's word. I'm going to be praying for Isla again. And so let's, uh, let's, let's do that right now. Let's ask God's uh, help. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And we would ask that you would do what we've already been praying for. And that is that you would help us, uh, that your spirit be, would be at work in our hearts and lives, going beyond what we can hear with our ears, but down into our very souls and our hearts. And so, God, our prayer is please do that. Uh, help us to see. We, we, we need to see you. We need to see Jesus. We need to see that he is truly worthy. And so, Father, our prayer is that you would, through your word, that you would be speaking and ministering to our hearts in such a way. Father, we're thankful. I am thankful. We are thankful for Psalm 139, which reminds us that even before a word comes out of our tongues, you know it, that you hem us in from behind and before, that when we do the most boring things of sitting down and standing up, you are aware of those, those things that we're not even thinking about, you're thinking about. And so, Father, as we bring our, our little sister Isla to you again, you know what she needs right now. You are there. And so, Father, we pray that you would be everything she needs right now. May she find the comfort that comes only from you. Would you help her and watch over her? We pray right now. We thank you, Father, that we can lift her up into your presence. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we found John the Baptist living out his unrepeatable life for the purpose of the praise of God's glorious grace. And what we learned last week is that like John the Baptist, each of us has an unrepeatable life. There will never be a person like you again. There is never going to, there's never one in the past, there's never going to be one in the future. You have an unrepeatable life of which God has called you uh, to do the same thing, to play the role in God's redemptive story for the purpose of the praise of God's glorious grace. Well, in this week's passage, we're introduced to a few new characters within the story, each with a role to play for the purpose of the glory of God's grace. And in playing out their role, John wants us to show us this about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the joy, is the door, excuse me, to your joy in God. Jesus Christ is the door to your joy in God. Begins at the beginning of your spiritual life to the end of life and on into eternity. I think that's what this passage is going to show us this morning. So in order to order our thoughts and to point us to Jesus Christ, I have, I have divided this message into four M's. Four M's, mission, method, motive, and measure. Mission, method, motive, and measure. Measure. So let's look at the mission. Let's begin at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The next day. The next day. So what, we need to get some context here. We need to look back at what has previously happened and then, then put us into this context. So in verses 19 through 28, the Sanhedrin had sent representatives to learn more about this person, John the Baptist. Uh, they wanted to know who he was. 
they wanted to know by what authority had he come to baptize. And they wanted to know, why is he baptizing? Now, if you remember, the Sanhedrin is the highest authority, authoritative body in the land under which Roman, under Roman authority, controlled, the Sanhedrin controlled all Jewish eternal affairs. And they were primarily made up of two parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And if you remember from last week, to get an understanding of the weight of their authority, you can think of the Sanhedrin in our American terms as the judicial, executive, and the legislative branches all wrapped up into one authoritative body. And so they were one's opinions that mattered for life. But John, he lived, John the Baptist lived his unrepeatable life fueled by a humility that recognized that all that John the Baptist had, his, his position and his place and his possessed gifts and his purposes, that that all came from God Almighty. So that as a result, then he recognized that out of his humility, that this is the very energy that caused him to face those who had this heavy opinion and to say to them, uh, to really have the courage to obey God's call and to speak against them. And so it's this man, the next day, after answering the questions from these delegates, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, he repeats, he continues, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. But here's what's most remarkable, verse 31. I myself, John says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. There's a theme there's a theme repeated throughout the Gospel of John that was introduced in verses 10 and 11. And it's this, that it is even though the world was created by him and is sustained by him, Jesus, the Word, John writes, yet the world did not know him. And then John points out that not even his own people, the nation of Israel, of which he is, he's walking among them, it says there in verse 11, they did not receive him. See, the writer, John, of the gospel, he wants us to know that there is a serious spiritual blindness, a serious spiritual blindness problem in humanity. So John the Baptist himself confesses, I myself did not know him. So how was John the Baptist's spiritual eyes open to the true identity of Jesus? Well, we see, we look at verse 32, and this is what happened. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself, there he goes again, I myself did not know him, but he, he who was sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. And so then John's eyes were opened. Now, back to our text. The next day. The next day, day after he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John was standing with two of his disciples. And when he sees Jesus walk by again, he repeats, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed him. 
See, John continues, John the Baptist continues to fulfill his role within God's redemptive plan. He is pointing people to Christ. Thus, it's not surprising that these two followers of John began to follow Jesus. The word followed. This is going to be one of several words that we're going to come along here, which has in one place a mundane understanding of what it means, but then has a much deeper supernatural, uh, spiritual meaning. This word followed is the first one. See, for a people who are blind to the creator and redeemer among them, spiritual eye surgery starts with the mundane. As believers in Jesus Christ, we ought not to belittle the mundane, even the most mundane activities that we do in order to point people to Jesus Christ. So John's two disciples began to do the mundane. They walked after Jesus. They followed Jesus. But what they did not know, what they did in simple terms of following him, they didn't know would lead to a relationship way beyond their imaginations. They would become followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, disciples. So the two disciples following Jesus Christ began by doing the mundane. And they put themselves in a place to learn more. And it's still true today. Following Jesus Christ begins with a simple step of putting yourself in a place to learn more. As simple as opening your Bible and beginning to read it. Start with the Gospel of John. Simple as deciding you're going to go to a missional community and begin to hear about the Word of God. Uh, simple as just asking honest questions, questions that you may think are embarrassingly simple. Ask those questions. We've all asked them, or we want to ask them. <laughs> or just simply do this. Just talk to him and pray. Simple, ordinary activities, simple steps of putting ourselves into a place to learn more. So they did that. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what, what are you seeking? Well, just as they're following, him had both a simple and more profound meaning. So does Jesus' question here. So in, in a very simple, direct sense, he turns to the two, find two individuals walking behind him, and he wants to know, why are you following me? <laughs> and by their answer, we know they took it in the most simplest way. But there's a much deeper sense to the question, isn't there? He is asking them, what are they seeking for their ultimate satisfaction? You see that? What, what are you seeking? What do you really want? What's your desire? See, that's what he's literally asking them. It's the deeper question. It's a question that gets down into the depth of our greatest desires. It's a question about what we think is going to bring peace. It's a question about what do we think is going to bring purpose to our lives. It's a question about what do we think is going to bring satisfaction. He's wanting us to ask that question. See, uh, last week I posed that we should ask the question, who are you? This week we need to be asking the question, what do I want? D.A. Carson, in his commentary, writes, 
He writes, the evangelist, speaking of John, the gospel writer, the evangelist wants his readers to reflect on a deeper question. The Logos Messiah confronts those who make any show of beginning to follow him and demands that they articulate what they really want in life. It's a great question. It's a great question for us to ask. Well, now here's the disciples' moment. Have you ever done that game, that kind of mental game where you're maybe in a group of people and you say, hey, if you could ask anyone, someone in history, one question, whom would you ask uh, that question and what question would you ask? It's kind of fun to hear what people respond in terms of that. They kind of get you a little bit more insight into who they are and what they think is important. And so, uh, so if you could ask Jesus one question, what would you ask? Well, here's their question. <laughs> Continue verse 38. And they said to him, Rabbi, and then you see here in the parentheses, which means teacher, that's for the Greek readers. So anytime you see the parentheses, this is for the John the Gospel as he's he uh, has this out there. It's for the Greek readers who may not know what rabbi is. It's a Hebrew word, which means teacher, a term of honor. Here's their question. Where are you staying? <laughs> now, now, whoops, kind of blew it there, right? Uh, probably uh, years after the resurrection, they're probably reflecting back on going, boy, boy, did we blow that. I mean, really? That's the question we asked? Where are you staying? <laughs> well, um, but John is a master with words. The word staying is the same word that is used throughout the gospel for abide. Now, why is that important? Well, John 15 is particularly an important place where this word shows up. And it's especially significant. John 15, verse 4, look at what Jesus says here. Abide in me, and I in you. There's our word. So when these two disciples are asking, where are you abiding? They're thinking in terms of mundane terms, but later they will learn that in following Jesus, he will abide in them and find their satisfaction. But for the time, Jesus answers their more mundane question, verse 39. He said to them, come, and you will see. Then they must have been thrilled. Uh, so they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. I love that phrase. It was about the 10th hour. It was a very ordinary moment. The 10th hour, which would be 4 o'clock in the afternoon. A very ordinary moment and a deeply profound moment. See, John has already told us in the preamble, he said, the word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And for these two disciples, it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon when that came true. And that's how God works. The hidden spiritual work of God that gets to the root of our being takes place in the ordinary settings of our lives like four o'clock in the afternoon. See, 
It's ordinary moments. It's the ordinary work that we do. It's, it's the reading of God's word where there are no fireworks and there's no spiritual, no spiritual highs. You, you spend 15 minutes getting up in the morning. You spend some time in God's word. And you think, am I getting anything out of this? And then you pray and you wonder, is God even hearing this? It's the ordinary moment. Nothing is kind of telling you anything. This is the time that God works. He works in the ordinary, in the mundane Now, did you catch Jesus' mission? What did he say? He said, come and you will see. That's the mission. This to see is going to be repeated three more times in our passage. Verse 46, come and see. Verse 50, you will see greater things than these. And verse 51, you will see heaven opened. For a people who are in danger of not seeing the creator and redeemer walking among them, this is Good news. Come and I will show you. Come and see. You're going to miss me, but come and see. Good news. God's mission is that we will see Jesus Christ for who he really is, and that is the mission he passes on to us, inviting others to come and see. Just come and see. Living life on life with a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, inviting them into your life. To come and see how Jesus meets you in all of the daily chaos you call life. <laughs> see, we, we got to remember this. God does not call us to show, uh, show people how our life is all put together. That's not what we want them to come and see. That's not Because none of our lives are, right? The reality is, that's not the way our lives are. No, he, he doesn't tell us to show people how our lives are put together. No, he calls us to show people in the chaos of our life, in the brokenness of our life, in the questioning and the doubts that you and I have in our life. Come and see how Jesus meets me there. Come and see Jesus. Jesus Christ is the door to your joy in God. From the beginning of your spiritual life to the end of life and on into eternity. So that's the mission. God is on and has given to us. So what is the method? Well, we kind of got a hint of that method. Uh, what's the method? Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and he said, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, and again here for the Greek readers, which means Christ. See, Andrew became the first in a line, a long line of successors that demonstrates the method. Life on life, friend to friend, or in this case, brother to brother. And we see it again in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And then he found Philip. Now, I think the he there, I'm going to argue, is Andrew found Philip. So the next day, Jesus decided to go to, Phil, to, go to Galilee, and Andrew found Philip. And Andrew introduces Philip to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, follow me. Now, why do I think it was Andrew? Well, I think it was Andrew because it's supported by the fact that everyone who comes to Jesus in this chapter does so because of someone else's witness. And the words witness or testimony are words conspicuously used throughout this chapter. Verse 7, 15, 19, 32, 34, all before pointing us to then this vignette. So the method is life on life, friend to friend, 
brother to brother. Verse 44. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael. That's the method. Now think about it. Think about your own story. What relationship or relationships did God use to cause you to see his son? What mundane moment turned into a profound moment in that introduction? What time of the day when you were unsuspecting did God use a simple act from a friend or a family member to introduce you to Jesus Christ? Well, that's the method. That's the method. Jesus Christ is the door to your joy in God, and it begins in your spiritual life and ends the life, never ends to the end of life and on into eternity. That's the method. Well, what's the motive? Number three, what's the motive? What is the motive that moves the method to complete the mission? Well, the motive is joy in Christ Jesus. Joy in Christ Jesus. Let me, let me show you this. Look at verse 41. He, Andrew, found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, now to get an understanding of what just happened in that that moment of that, what we just read there, uh, we need to go back to God's story of redemption that began at the fall and began to be crystallized through another character uh, in the story, Abram, later named uh, Abraham. So I've got for you Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3, which tells us where Abraham came from. Here's Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So uh, Abraham is being raised up in a pagan uh, family, in a, in a family that is serving other gods, we, uh, probably the moon gods uh, of Babylon and, and, and that area. And so he's raised up in this. He's a, he, he's a worshiper of idols. And this is what God did. I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. So this is what we know about Abraham. God didn't choose Abraham because he was a worshiper of the true God. He was a pagan worshiping other gods. Abraham wasn't looking for God, but God was looking for Abraham to the praise of his glorious grace. He, Abraham, did not earn or deserve the true and living God to pick him out. God chose Abram as the man and his descendants as the nation from which the Messiah would come to bless all the world. And so Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we're familiar. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's people had been waiting for 2,000 years for the Messiah who would be that blessing, that would come through the line of Abraham, the one that is promised here, that would be the blessing to all nations. They were waiting for 2,000 years. So when Andrew found his brother and said, we have found the Messiah, this isn't news to be held back, to be held in private. No matter of fact, isn't that why we share good news? We share it because it's not just for our enjoyment. We share it because we want to fully enjoy it. So for our full enjoyment of good news, we love to share good news. So when we find something good, we enjoy it. But for the full enjoyment, we tell others. And when we do, we bring glory to that which is so good. So Andrew goes to Peter, brother to brother, and brings him to Jesus out of joy. I found the Messiah. <laughs> this is the motive that overcomes the cynicism of our day. This is the motive that overcomes the cynicism of our neighbors. See, cynicism is the default attitude of our age. And the reason is, is because all the bluster and boasts of the newest and the best never line up with the reality. Never. So what's going to cut through this wall of cynicism? Well, Philip had a friend like that, a cynic. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. So Philip's witness is similar to Andrew's. He's identifying Jesus as the Messiah, but he does so by referring back to the Old Testament and the law and the prophets. Now, at this point, Nathaniel might have been intrigued. But then Philip provided the kind of information that positively identifies a man in the first century, the name of his village and the name of his earthly father. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael's cynicism kicks in. <laughs> Nathanael said to him, verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, Nathanael's from Canaan, another city in Galilee, another town, really, in Galilee. In Galilee, it, it, it did, didn't have a, a stellar reputation of itself. It really was the backwater of all the provinces of the, of the Palestinian area, the province of Palestine. It was the backwater, you know, Galilee, Louisiana, West Virginia. I don't know. You're probably from there, and I just offended you. Sorry. One of the states. You, you pick your state. But from Nathaniel's rhetorical question, it seems that Nazareth is not only in the backwater province, but is in a backwater of the backwater. <laughs> not such a stellar reputation. Now, perhaps it was just size. You know, you know don't blink, you're going to miss it kind of place. Or perhaps it was a rival community. We all have them, you know, that rival community. My, the, the rival town of my wife's town and her upbringing was Ashland, and it was known in their community as Trashland. Yeah. 
but perhaps it had an earned reputation. See, long after Jesus ascended, the name Nazarene had continued to take on a contemptuous overtone so that in Acts 24, verse 5, Christians were identified as that Nazarene sect. Not a compliment. Isn't it amazing how God works? Here, here, we have, here we have the King of Kings, the Lord of the Lord, the God the, the, uh, of the universe, and God says, you know where I'm going to place you? I'm going to place you down in that no-name town. And that's where I'm going to do my magic. But Paul, uh, but Philip's joy is undeterred by his friend's cynicism. So Philip said to him, well, come and see. And now Philip has taken on Jesus' mission. Come and see. Come and see. See, we have friends like that, don't we? We have friends whose own stories have beaten them down in such a way that they see no hope for a Savior, no hope for someone to change their life. They have a wall of resistance that no cold, logical claim about who Jesus is is going to bring that wall down. Oh, but the warm joy of the Lord in our lives can melt hearts. Well, Nathaniel responds to Philip's joy-filled invitation and heads toward Jesus, verse 47. Well, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, in Nathanael's hearing, said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed. Now, Jesus knows there. Jesus starts with a strong pointer word, behold. He is wanting his listeners, including Nathanael, to hear something. Here's an Israelite. But not any ordinary Israelite. Indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, what does Jesus mean that Nathanael has no deceit? Well, he didn't mean Nathanael was a perfect individual. The, the word deceit, or guile in other versions, was used in earlier Greek writers as bait for fishing. So, bait deceives fish. Fish thinks it's going to be food, and they end up becoming food. Well, the word here means to be untrue or deceptive or duplicit. So what Jesus sees in Nathanael is a man who is without pretense. He's a straightforward kind of guy. And he just simply wants to know how Jesus could. He just simply wants to know Jesus. And so look how Nathanael responds, verse 48. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? It's almost in the spirit of asking, have we met? <laughs> Do we know each other? See, he wants to know how Jesus could know him so well. It, it takes a lot of work, doesn't it, to curate our lives? To curate our lives so that people don't know us. It's a lot of work. See, there's a real fear in us that if people did really know us, they wouldn't like us. And if you've ever risked opening yourself up to someone and they reject you, then it's a double down. 
It's a double down effect on making certain that nothing like that happens again. So what do we do? We put on an armor of pretense. We become our own saviors. But like armor, it is hard like armor, like that armor that they did in, you know, the knights and shining armor. It's, it's, it's hard to get around. It's hard to find rest when you have this armor on all the time. So how refreshing Jesus' words must have been to the cynic Nathaniel when Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, Nathaniel, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Oh boy, here we go again. One of those mundane words that has much more meaning to it. See, yes, Jesus supernaturally saw Nathaniel under a fig tree, but by Nathaniel's question, did you get that? Did you see his question? How do you what? Know me. Jesus' scene went way beyond just the physical location. Jesus' assessment of Nathaniel's character hit the mark. Nathaniel was known. You know me. Now look who's joy, who just got joy. Now look who just got joy. <laughs> Nathaniel, verse 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi! In an instant, Nathaniel's cynical remark, can you do anything good come from Nazareth? Has turned into an expression of honor. Rabbi. And then secondly, you are the son of God. See, no follower of an ordinary teacher is going to make this kind of claim. This is a claim of deity. A son is the essence of their father, and so Jesus is the essence of his father. As his father is God, so he is God. And then the third remark, you are the king of Israel. See, Nathaniel's agreeing with Philip. Jesus is the Messiah. King of Israel is just another phrase uh, for Messiah, but one that Jesus had shied away from because of the popular mindset and the expectations that tied it to a political liberator. Jesus didn't want to be known by that. But I think more importantly for Nathaniel, whom Jesus just had said, a true Israelite, Nathaniel was saying this, you are my king. See, that's the power of the motive. Someone with joy because they've come and seen Jesus and now they're going and introducing somebody else to Jesus, Nathaniel in this case. And all of a sudden, Nathaniel, who's a cynic, he sees the joy and he comes and, and then Jesus sees him for who he really is. And he recognizes something unique about him. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see Jesus. He will see in you. And he will see in you what you don't even see. See, Jesus Christ is the door to your joy in God. So, what makes the mission so good? What makes the method appropriate? What makes the manner real? It's this it's the measure. Fourth, fourth, fourth M, it's the measure. It's the measure. Let me explain. Uh, do you know this summer uh, we are going to have our seventh Mission Impossible movie? Yeah, seven. 
Now, it's called Dead Reckoning. Dead Reckoning, part one. Irritating. Right? <laughs> Dead Reckoning, part one. Coming out in theaters this summer. And the question I have to, I, I want to ask, I want to ask Ethan Hunt, that's the character, that's Tom Cruise's character. What, the question I want to ask Ethan Hunt is this. Ethan, why are you taking on all these missions that are impossible? Well, or maybe put it this way. Why another mission that's impossible? Why are you doing this, Ethan? Well, because they are so irresistibly good. The object of the mission is so irresistibly good. See, their purpose is so important, so necessary, that Ethan Hunt just can't resist trying to do the impossible. <laughs> See, they measure up. What keeps us on mission? What keeps us on mission is the object of our mission, the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that's what he's trying to show Nathaniel at the end here. He's wanting him to see Jesus measures up. So verse 50, look at verse 50. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Basically, Jesus is saying, you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> you haven't seen anything yet. Nathaniel is experiencing what we have all experienced more than once in our lives, and it's a particular moment when we're introduced to something that's new to us, and it brings us great joy, and in inquiry of that, then we have this added joy that there's a whole lot more where that came from. So for you superhero fans, it's like someone having you over to stream the first Spider-Man movie. You've never seen a Superman hero movie before. He, you, they have you come over to stream the first Spider-Man movie, and they ask at the end, well, what do you think? And you answered, I love it. I loved it. I wish there were more movies like this. <laughs> or if you like milk chocolate. It's like the enjoyment. Just imagine this. An enjoyment, if you've never had M&Ms before, and so it's the, you, 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 you're given a, you know, that little three-ounce bag. I think that's probably what it is. Three-ounce bag, and you take it, and you say, oh, my goodness, milk, chocolate, this is really good. And they say to you, oh, you haven't even started. You haven't even started. This is just the beginning of the myriad of flavors. And if you think the flavors are good, just wait till you go to a three-story building called the M&M Store. With all of the wonders. Or if you're a reader, it's like reading Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander and coming to the end and thinking, wow, I wish there were more. And then you discover, oh, there's 15 more volumes. See, what makes the mission and the method and thus generates the motive of joy is the measure of the one all this points to, Jesus Christ. You haven't seen nothing yet. So what is Nathaniel going to see and how does this measure up? Verse 51, here we go. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. 
and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now here we go. It starts with truly, truly. See, this is a double emphasis expressing that what you are about to hear is true. So that if you have any doubts, you don't have to doubt this. And the one who is speaking here is God himself who cannot lie. So he says, truly, truly, here it comes. I say to you. Now it's in the plural, so it's not just now to Nathaniel, but it's to those who are with Nathaniel, those who are, who are around Nathaniel, who are hearing this. It's to us. What are they going to see? What's Nathaniel going to see? Well, he's going to see that Jesus is the open door to a spiritual life. He's the door. He's the portal. He's the gateway. Now, what is Jesus alluding to here in verse 40, 51? Well, it's, it's the patriarchs, Jacob. It's his dream. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. So Jacob's dream in Genesis 28, so I have that up there for you. Let me just give it to you, and then we're just going to look at verse 17. Jacob left Beersheba and went down toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. He used a rock for a pillow. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now hopefully you recognize something there. You recognize that which was given to Abraham. I think I said his grandfather, his father. Behold, verse 15, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? And then he says this, this is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. That's what Jesus said is having in his mind. And I want you to notice this verse 17 of Genesis. This is, he says, this is none other than the house of God. And that can be translated the tabernacle of God or the temple of God. It's the place where God dwells. So this is none other than the place where God dwells. It is where the person meets God, the temple, the tabernacle. This is where you met God and you saw God's glory. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And now notice Jacob's second statement. This is the gate of heaven. So Jesus said to Nathaniel, you will see heaven opened. Jesus is the access point to heaven. See, the fallen, hu fallen human imagination has an obsession with a gateway, with a door into another world. Just recently, there was a television show that ran for a decade, 1997 to 2007, literally called Stargate. And the show was all about this gate to take you someplace else. 
Or I think of, if I got this correctly, the superhero, superhero genre has access to the multiverse, whatever that is. See, intuitively, we are looking for that door. So that later in John, Jesus simply says, truly, truly, I am the door. That door you're looking for? It's Jesus. He's the access point. Nathaniel, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm the door. I'm the way that you can access heaven. See, earlier I said he will see in you what you don't see. Now when you think about that, him being able to see you for who you really are, that can be really bad. Right? I mean, we curate our lives so that people won't see that. But he sees you. He knows you. He knows your sin in the deepest, darkest recesses of your life of which you have closed the door, put, a lock, put the key in the lock and locked it and throw that key away so that you have even forgotten that place. Jesus says, I see it. And it's the same one who came to take those sins. To take those sins in his body on the cross. The good news for you is he sees all of it. And he went to the cross and took your sins in his body on the cross and paid for them. He died for you. He's the door. So you don't have to curate your life anymore. You don't have to pretend. You can say, yes, I'm a sinner, and I want a Savior. I want Jesus. See, the measure of the mission is Jesus, who is our Savior. And so he says this to Nathaniel, the cynic. He says, oh, you think you've seen things? Oh, I'll show you so much more. So he is the door for us to come into. But he is also another door. See, he, it, it, we haven't seen anything yet. Uh, he says, you will see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See, not only is he the door and entrance into a relationship with him, but then he is really expressing here that God will then minister to his own. So just as the Father ministers to his Son through angels, we're going to see in the Gospel of John, so Jesus is the door through which he now ministers to us. See, there is this spiritual realm with spiritual beings, angels, ministering to us in ways do we, that we do not know. And so, so not only are you entering into a relationship with me, but I am going to be ministering to you all the way through your life. Because what I know about you has died on the cross, and now what I want to do is, now what I know about you is I want to make it come true. See, we saw that earlier in in Peter's life. See, Jesus, when he, he looked at Peter, remember that uh, just a little bit earlier, uh, Andrew had brought Peter to him, and at this point his name is Simon, and with the penetrating eyes of God, who saw deep down into Simon's broken soul, he said, you are Simon the son of John, you shall now be called Cephas. And for all of us Greek speakers, <laughs> don't know what that means, we're told that's Peter. And if you don't know what Peter means in the Greek, it means the rock. 
See, Jesus sees what his followers will become. Jesus is making a declaration of what he will make of Peter, which is what his name means, a rock. So he is going to become a rock on which the, his declarative statement found in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the living God is upon what the church has found. And so the same is true for you. He sees what you can see about yourself. See, what you see is you see all your shortcomings. You see all your sins. You see all your, fly, your, your faults. You don't even see some of those. Jesus sees them all. He died for them. You are blinded by your past. He sees what you can't imagine. His image in you. That's what he sees. And he declares you righteous on the cross. And then he makes you right. He takes your crooked life and begins to straighten it out. <laughs> Can't imagine. Oh, Nathan, you haven't seen anything yet. What I'm going to do. He ministers to his own. And lastly, did you notice how Jesus identified himself there at the end? He says, he calls himself son of man. Now, in the New Testament, this title refers only to Jesus, and it occurs almost always only from Jesus' lips. Jesus is the one who says, I'm the Son of Man. And he does that, he makes that claim, because it's what he's doing, he's reaching back to the prophet Daniel, who got to see something, and it's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, last passage, Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God, and was presented before him, and to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So it's through the son of man through this door into heaven, that the kingdom of God will then one day come and reign among us. So what Nathaniel and the other disciples is going to see is that the Son of Man, for this reign to take place, is going to take him through suffering and up to the cross and suffering and dying on the cross in order that Jesus Christ might be truly called the King of kings and Lord of lords and all who will bow down to him and all who have received him as their Lord and Savior will reign with him. See, Jesus Christ is the door to your joy in God, and it begins when you receive him as your Lord and Savior, continues into this life until this life is gone and on into eternity. Oh, Nathaniel, you haven't seen anything yet. Oh, we haven't seen anything yet. We sang about it. We're going to see him face to face and one day be like him. That's is the measure of the mission. Today is, or this weekend is Memorial Weekend, and we are contemplating and thinking about people who have gone before us, particularly those who have sacrificed their entire life to die for us. So probably an important, uh, probably an appropriate verse then for us to think about in times of Jesus Christ. John 15, verse 14, he says, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ laid his life down for his friends. He took your sins, 
on the cross and died for them and rose again to give you life. Four more words. Jesus says, you are my friends. Lord's Supper that we are about to take is a reminder. Matter of fact, Luke says, when we take this, we remember, like we do on Memorial Day. We do it every week. We remember what Jesus has done for us, the covenant that he has brought us into. See, we have failed this past week. And so what we need to do is that we come back in, we just simply are renewing that covenant that he has never failed us, we have failed him, and we're reminded, oh, that's right, Jesus died for that too. <laughs> so we take bread, and we're reminded that in this bread, this bread reminds us that uh, Jesus Christ took our sins in his body. We take a little cup, and we're reminded by that little cup that Jesus Christ shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We're reminded of the joy that is ours because of Jesus Christ. And so if you are a baptized believer, if you're repentant and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to come down uh, to this table and enjoy. But as we do, let's, let's, let's look at our own lives and say, yeah, God, you know, I failed you this past week and confess that. Let's come, come recognizing what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today's the day. Come and see. I hope you've come and you've seen the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the service. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that you are kind to us, that you, that you take people who Jesus walked among and you said we would not see him apart from you doing a work in our lives. Thank you that you've shown us Jesus this morning. Our prayer, Father, is that if there's anybody here who has yet to just rest in Christ, that today would be the day. That they've seen Jesus, and Jesus is now inviting them to become part of his family. If this is you, just tell him, yeah, God, I'm a sinner. You see it all. You see more than I do. But I believe that Jesus died on, my, on the cross for my sins. I want him as my Lord and Savior today. Just tell him that. Simple. No fireworks. No weird spiritual experience. Just simple words to a God who enjoys taking the mundane, ordinary, and doing extraordinary things in our lives. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.